Welcome back to Beyond the Uniform. I'm Justin Asiri, and my goal is to help members of the military community thrive in their post-service career and life. Normally on the show, I interview a military veteran about their civilian career, what they do, how they got there, and advice to others seeking to do the same. Today, I'm doing part two of a book review continued from last week. Uh, the book is called 4,000 Weeks, the Time, uh, Time Management for Mortals by Oliver Berkman. As I said last week, I've read a lot of books on productivity, and this one really stands out. I just thought it was such a novel approach and a counter-narrative to... Uh, the narrative I typically hear, which is get up at 4.30 and get more done, and he makes a very solid case that that will never work. There will never be enough time to get everything done, and it really takes a mindset shift. So uh, last week's episode was just a quick tactical, uh, giving you a top 10 list of things to do. This one I want to, borrowing from a website called slow.co, which I thought was an exceptional summary of the book, um, I, I'm basing my summary on that and wanted to go through the different elements of this book in a fairly detailed way, partly to benefit our audience and partly just a refresher for myself. I like to listen to these things periodically to uh, remind myself of books that I've gotten a lot of value from, and I hope it helps you in your career and life. So first of all, a couple things to know, uh, five things to know about the book, um, and I'll just read a couple quotes here. Uh, so the title is based on this. So it's assuming you live to be 80, you'll have about 4,000 weeks. You might have assumed there'd be a handful of productivity books that take seriously the stark facts about the shortness of life instead of pretending that we can just ignore the subject, but you'd be wrong. 4,000 Weeks is yet another book about making the best use of time, but it is written in the belief that time management as we know it has failed miserably and that we need to stop pretending otherwise. This book is an exploration of a saner way of relating to time and a toolbox of practical ideas for doing so, drawn from the, from the work of philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who all rejected the struggle to dominate or master time. I believe it sketches a kind of life that's vastly more peaceful and meaningful, while also, it turns out, being better for sustained productivity over the long haul. You could think of this book as an extended argument for the empowering potential of giving up hope. Embracing your limits means giving up hope that with the right techniques and a bit more effort, you'd be able to meet other people's limitless demands, realize your every ambition, excel in every role, or give every good cause or humanitarian crisis the attention it seems like it deserves. It means giving up hope of, of ever feeling totally in control or certain that, act, uh, that acutely painful experiences aren't coming your way. And it means giving up as far as possible the master hope that lurks beneath all of this, the hope that somehow this, really, this isn't really it, that it's just a dress rehearsal, and that one day you'll feel truly confident you have what it takes. Uh, beautiful <laughs> quotes there. I just think it really hits the nail on the head of why I appreciated this book, because I agree that most of the time management books that I've read just kind of missed the mark on, um, you know, he, he said it better than I could. Um, so let's go through the different sections of this book, and I'll just share basically um, quotes to go along with it to give you a teaser uh, and, and hopefully add value even if you don't read the book. So one of the things he talks about in this book is limits and finitude. Uh, he talks about something called a limit-embracing attitude, quote, Organizing your days with the understanding that you definitely won't have time for everything you want to do or that other people want you to do, and so at the very least, you can stop beating yourself up for failing. I love that. I feel like it lets us all off the hook that we're never going to get everything done. 
A couple quotes. First one, the real problem isn't our limited time. The real problem, or I hope, or so I hope to convince you, is that we're unwittingly inherited and feel pressured to live by a troublesome set of ideas about how to use our limited time, all of which are pretty much guaranteed to make things worse. Second, the fundamental problem is that this attitude towards time sets up a rigged game in which it's impossible ever to feel as though you're doing well enough. Instead of simply living our lives as they unfold in time, instead of just being time, you might say, it becomes difficult not to value each moment primarily according to its usefulness for some future goal. Third, denying reality never works. It may provide some immediate relief because it allows you to go on thinking that at some point in the future you might at last feel totally in control, but it can't ever bring the sense that you're doing enough, that you are enough, because it defines enough as a kind of limitless control that no human can attain. Another thing he talks about is the efficiency trap, which he talks about as rendering yourself more efficient, either by implementing various productivity techniques or by driving yourself harder, won't generally result in the feeling of having enough time because all else being equal, the the demands will increase to offset any benefits. Certainly holds true in my life where the more (laughs) efficient I am, the more emails I get, the more I get to inbox zero, the more emails I receive. And just like everything else, the more efficient I am, the more demands there are in my time. Two quotes to go along with this. The first one, the more you firmly believe it ought to be possible to find time for everything, the less pressure you'll feel to ask whether any given activity is the best use for a portion of your time. Second, what's needed is a kind of anti-skill, not the counterproductive strategy of trying to make yourself more efficient, but rather a willingness to resist such urges, to learn to stay with the anxiety of feeling overwhelmed, of not being on top of everything, without automatically responding by trying to fit in more. To approach your days in this fashion means, instead of clearing the decks, declining to clear the decks, focusing instead on what's truly of greatest consequence while tolerating the discomfort of knowing that, as you do so, the decks will be filling up further with emails and errands and other to-dos, many of which you may never get around to at all. This has really been a big lesson for me this year with you know having two kids and a uh, new and very, very rapidly growing company. Um, it is the discomfort that I can't get everything done. And I realize I've gotten away for a long time of crossing everything off to do my, my, my to-do list. And it is really uncomfortable realizing that is absolutely impossible now. So I really like this thought of just staying with that anxiety and realizing like, I don't want to just clear out my email to feel good about doing things. I don't want to just cross things off. I want to be deliberate in focusing on what truly matters. And that's a master skill in my, my belief to be able to prioritize and then let the rest go. And I don't know if other veterans struggle with this. Maybe it's our, you know, commitment to getting things done, but I really, really struggle with this. Um, Another topic in the book is time and attention as resources. Uh, He says about that, once time and life had been separated in most people's minds, time became a thing that you used. And it's this shift that serves as the precondition for all the uniquely modern ways in which we struggle with time today. A couple quotes, uh, four quotes, just to kind of bring that home. First, from thinking about time in the abstract, it's natural to start treating as a resource, something to be bought and sold and used as efficiently as possible, like coal or iron or any other raw material. Two, 
once time is a resource to be used, you start to feel pressure, whether from external forces or from yourself, to use it well and to berate yourself when you feel you've wasted it. <laughs> uh, laughing because that rings so true. Third, to describe attention as a resource is to subtly misconstrue its centrality in our lives. Most other resources on which we rely as individuals, such as food, money, and electricity, are things that facilitate life. And in some cases, it's possible to live without them, at least for a while. Attention, on the other hand, just is life. Your experience of being alive consists of nothing other than the sum of everything to which you pay attention. At the end of your life, looking back, whatever compelled your attention from moment to moment is simply what your life will have been. And then fourth, the truth is that time is also a network good, one that derives its value from how many other people have access to it too, and how well their portion is coordinated with yours. It's it's kind of crazy reading these things right now because I'm uh, reading another book that I'll, I'll post here on the podcast soon called The Second Mountain, and it's exceptional. But a lot of it is about how when we use our time towards others and towards service, it's much more fulfilling. And so I really like this sense of um, getting away of viewing time as a resource and that that judgment of, oh, I wasted my time because I was with my son for an hour playing. I, I really like divorcing ourselves from that mindset and not viewing it. And, and I like that analogy to food. It's not like you're using food well. It's like you just eat. It's just something that it facilitates life. Um, moving on from that, he talks about time as leisure, um, and he defines that as we probably can't hope to grasp how utterly alien this attitude, the, the attitude of time being uh, leisure, um, this attitude towards leisure would have seemed to anyone living at any point before the Industrial Revolution. Uh, three quotes to go along with this. First, to the philosophers of the ancient world, leisure wasn't the means to some end. On the contrary, it was the end to which everything else was worth doing it was a means. Aristotle, Aristotle argued that true leisure, by which he meant self-reflection and philosophical contemplation, was among the very highest of virtues because it was worth choosing for its own sake, whereas other virtues like courage and war or noble behavior in government were virtues only because they led to something else. Second, work now demanded to be seen as the real point of existence. Leisure was merely an opportunity for recovery and replenishment for the purposes of further work. And then third, we have inherited from all this a deeply bizarre idea of what it means to spend your time off quote-unquote well, and conversely, what counts as wasting it. In this view of time, anything that doesn't create some form of value for the future is, by definition, mere idleness. Rest is permissible, but only for the purpose of recuperation from work or perhaps for some other form of self-improvement. I love this. I fall into this trap as well. You know, doing the dishes, listening to an audiobook, driving, listening to an audiobook, like every second needs to be accounted for. And it really is this sense that like any time away from work either needs to be getting me ready to work again or improving me in some way. And um, I just really like reinstituting, reinstituting a healthier view of leisure, which is having a hobby for no other reason than just doing that hobby, not always building a resume, not always, you know, kite surfing or whatever it is. Uh, he has some great examples in there, but I, I just like this um, perspective that throughout most of humans' history, time as a leisure is not, you know, it wasn't even a concept. It was, you know, you worked and you had your time off and that time off was why you lived. Um, and I think we get that backwards sometimes. 
another concept I really liked in this book was the truth about time. Uh, He explains it this way. Nobody ever really gets 4,000 weeks in which to live, not only because you might end up with fewer than that, but because in reality, you never even get a single week in the sense of being able to guarantee that it will arrive or that you'll be in a position to use it precisely as you wish. Instead, you just find yourself in each moment as it comes, already thrown this in, already thrown into this time and place with all the limitations that entails and unable to feel certain about what might happen next. I've got a lot to go along with this. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, ten, ten short quotes to go with this. First, uh, this is the maddening truth about time, which most advice on managing it seems to miss. The more you struggle to control it, to make it conform to your agenda, the further it slips from your control. Two, the universal truth is that most of us invent a lot, invest a lot of energy one way or another in trying to avoid fully experiencing the reality in which we find ourselves. Very true for me, <laughs> you know, using my phone every spare second rather than just being present. Third, the core challenge of managing our limited time isn't about how to get everything done. That's never going to happen. But how to decide most wisely what not to do and how to feel at peace about not doing it. Fourth, the only route to psychological freedom is to let go of the limit-denying fantasy of getting it all done and instead to focusing on doing a few things that count. I'm going to say that one one more time because it's so profound. The only route to psychological freedom is to let go of the limit-denying fantasy of getting it all done and instead to focus on doing a few things that count. Next, you have, a, you have to choose a few things, sacrifice everything else, and deal with the inevitable sense of loss that results. Next, focusing on fully enjoying the tiny slice of experiences you actually do have time for, and the freer you are to choose in each moment what counts the most. Seventh, skillfully, uh, or uh, eighth, Skillful time management is best understood as a matter of learning to procrastinate well by facing the truth about your finitude and making your choices accordingly. Ninth, missing out is what makes our choices meaningful in the first place. Every decision to use a portion of time on anything represents the sacrifice of all the other ways in which you could have spent that time but didn't. And to willingly make that sacrifice is to take a stand without reservation on what matters most to you. And then 10th, we must live out our lives to whatever extent we can in clear-eyed acknowledgement of our limitations in the undiluted mode of existence that Heidegger calls being towards death aware that this is it, that life is not a dress rehearsal, that every choice requires myriad sacrifices, and that time is already running out. Indeed, that it may run out today, tomorrow, or next month. I love that. In a lot of the men's group work that I've done with John Wineland, we talk about you know living with a sense that death is always over your left shoulder, living with that awareness that you really could die at any second, that when you meet with a friend, that might be the last time you see them. They may die. It really, you know, obviously it's impossible to hold that perspective always, but when I do, it reminds me of how precious this moment is. And I appreciate the author's point about how we give value to things by 
having them be one of the few things that we do. Like when I choose to spend time with my son or my daughter and I choose not to do all these other things like checking email or working or reading a book, it makes that time with them more precious. There is a value in that scarcity. Um, he, he goes on to talk about three procrastination principles, and he explains it. The point isn't to eradicate procrastination, but to choose more wisely what you're going to procrastinate on in order to focus on what matters most. The real measure of any time management technique is whether or not it helps you neglect the right things. So here are three uh, tips he gave for procrastination. First of all, pay yourself first when it comes to time. Quote, if you try to find time for your most valued activities by first dealing with all other important demands on your time in the hopes that there'll be some leftover at the end, you'll be disappointed. So if a certain activity really matters to you, a creative project, say, though it could just as easily be nurturing, nurturing a relationship or activism in the service of some cause, the only way to be sure it will happen is to do some of it today, no matter how little. And no matter how many other genuinely big rocks may be begging for your attention. Second, limit your work in progress. Quote, perhaps the most appealing way to resist the truth about your finite time is to initiate a large number of projects at once. That way you get to feel as though you're keeping plenty of irons in the fire and making progress on all fronts. Third, resist the allure of middling priorities. I'll say from a business standpoint, this has been tremendously helpful for me at Executive Presence, the extent to which we're able to set weekly or monthly sprints and just say this is the one thing we're doing as a team. Everyone is rowing in the same direction. We're able to get it done and feel good and move on. And I love this thought of shorter sprints that are very myopically focused rather than trying to do everything at the same time. He also gives um, three rules of patience to set this up, quote, in more and more context, patience becomes a form of power in a world geared for hurry. The capacity to resist the urge to hurry, to allow things to take the time they take is a way to gain purchase on the world, to do the work that counts and to derive satisfaction from doing the doing itself instead of, instead of deferring all your fulfillment to the future. In practical terms, three rules of thumb are especially useful for harnessing the power of patience as a creative force in your daily life. First, develop a taste for having problems. Quote, behind our urge to race through every obstacle or challenge in an effort to get it dealt with, there's usually the unspoken fantasy that you might one day finally reach the state of having no problem whatsoever. As a result, most, most of us treat the problems we encounter as doubly pro problematic. First, because of whatever specific problem we're facing. And second, because we seem to believe, if only subconsciously, that we shouldn't have problems at all. Yet the state of having no problems is obviously never going to arrive. And more to the point, you shouldn't want it to, because a life devoid of all problems would contain nothing worth doing and would therefore be meaningless. Second, embrace radical incrementalism. Quote, the psychology professor Robert Boyce spent his career studying the writing habits of his fellow academics, reaching to the conclusion that the most productive and successful among them generally made writing a smaller part of their daily routine than the others, so that it was much more feasible to keep it going with, day, with it day after day. 
they cultivated the patients to tolerate the fact that they probably wouldn't be producing very much on any individual day, with the result that they produced much more over the long term. That is such an exceptional point. Third, originality lies on the far side of unoriginality. Lastly, I'll just share five key questions that he uh, includes towards the end of the book. Um, and, and the tee up for this is, quote, the most fundamental question of time management, what would it mean to spend the only time you ever get in a way that truly feels as though you are making it count? Here are his five key questions. One, where in your life or your work are you currently pursuing comfort when what's called for is a little discomfort? makes me think of uh, deliberate discomfort. I interviewed the author forever ago. It's a great book. Second of all, are you holding yourself to and judging yourself by standards of productivity or performance that are impossible to meet? Yes, <laughs> for me, yes. Number three, in what ways have you yet to accept the fact that you are who you are, not the person you think you ought to be? Number four, in which areas of life are you still holding back until you feel like you know what you're doing? <laughs> Such a great startup lesson there, by the way, of just doing before you feel ready. And last one, number five, how would you spend your days differently if you didn't care so much about seeing your actions reach fruition? I love that. It makes me think of Cal Newport's books that we've talked about and interviewed him on the show, um, really doing deep work, not worrying about seeing the outcome, like building the cathedral, laying each brick, not needing to see you know, a like or a comment today, but building towards something meaningful. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Next week, we're back to the normal interview format. Hope you enjoyed this. Let me know if you like this. I do read quite a bit, and it's helpful for me to rehash what I've learned here. It's something I listen to to kind of keep it fresh in my head. If it helps you, let me know, and uh, we'll do my best to continue with this. Take care and talk soon.